Welcome back to the Voting While Black podcast. We're talking with the candidates running for president in 2020, getting real about what they think about race and exactly how they would help the movement for racial justice. I'm Rashad Robinson from Voting While Black, the nation's largest Black-led, volunteer-driven voter mobilization program, a project of Color of Change PAC. Our guest today is hedge fund billionaire Tom Steyer. You may know him as financing and being the visible spokesperson for the Need to Impeach campaign, promoting the impeachment of Donald Trump. He also founded the youth-focused voter mobilization project NextGen America, which mobilizes young voters on issues like climate change. Having Tom on Voting While Black podcast gave me the chance to ask him about how fighting for environmental justice fits into his work. He also spoke about his take on the value of corporate accountability and how we achieve it. We discussed how he'd use his resources as a billionaire to empower Black communities. Welcome, Tom. So happy that you're here with us. Almost every candidate, including yourself, has a platform around race, um, has policies that they want to implement to, you know, bring us closer to racial justice. I don't want to spend as much time talking about the details of all that, but the how. The how we are going to work to build that, um, to make those promises and to make justice real. And so I'd love to start off um, and have you talk um, as a businessman, as a activist, um, as someone who has built movement infrastructure. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how racial justice has played a role in your life. Well, I think you talk about the difference between presence and power. And what it really means to me is that if you're trying to get something done, that African-Americans have to be in leadership positions, that it isn't just a question about thinking about it, that in fact, from the very beginning, there has to be leadership, policy shaping, not just policy accepting. And so if you think about something that I've worked on for a really long time, Rashad, which is climate, Our climate policy, both in this campaign but for 10 years, has started with environmental justice. That unless you're dealing with the issues of clean air and clean water in the communities where pollution has been intentionally concentrated, unless the people from those communities are there at the beginning, unless they're leaders of the movement, you're going to get the wrong policy and you're not going to get it done as well. Yeah. So it's both. That's... Yeah. How it works. And that's power, not presence. We talk a lot um, here about people don't experience issues. They experience life. That the forces that hold people back are deeply interrelated, right? A racist criminal justice system requires a media culture to keep it alive. Political inequality goes hand in hand with economic inequality. And so um, there are so many plans out there, but then there are so many forces standing in the way of good plans happening. And so just focusing on the issue alone and having everyone champing it is not enough on its own. And so I'm interested from you is how are you going to deal with those forces? I'd love for you to talk about what well, forces you, know, you think what you think are, have been holding it back, because we hear about good policies, even under previous Democratic administrations that we haven't quite been able to make happen. Look, my thesis on why the government in Washington is so broken is that it's been purchased by corporations. 
and that they really run it and they write the laws for their bottom lines? And are they explicitly, intentionally picking on the African-American community? No. Are they picking, are they in fact doing that implicitly with what they're doing? Absolutely. Look, I've said from the beginning, we're not going to get a government that works for the people of the United States. We're not going to get a government that's going to accept leadership and the needs of the African-American community until we break that corporate, you know, stranglehold on democracy. And it, it goes to every single issue. And how do we do it, right? They are, they are power. I mean, they are powerful. They, they dictate, are deep in they, this they, they, Yeah, and they dictate the terms of so much from the, the debate through the media to what we believe is possible for our purchasing power, to how government, to how campaigns are funded in yes. this country. And so how? Look, to me, I, I've been saying there's three steps. One is to call it out. Yeah. Like we never change anything mm-hmm. in this country until people call it out. A lot of times it's activists, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not the people in government. It's activists saying, this is the problem, we have to do it. I think there are some things in the government right now that a president or an administration could use, like the Federal Election Commission, mm-hmm. to get rid of dark money, to really punish people who are abusing the system. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we're going to have to have structural change here, and the American people are going to have to insist on it. You know, I've been talking about term limits in Congress, a national referendum, specifically going after the deliberate organized attempt to suppress the vote, to suppress African-American mm-hmm. voters. That's a critical part of this. A critical part of corporate control is the suppression of African-American votes across the United States of America. Yeah. You've been really successful in business, um, successful on, in the terms of like how the rules were set up, right? You've been deeply successful in that. And you've also built movement um, organizations in NextGen and worked to empower um, young people to speak out and build power around climate justice. I'm interested in why, right? Like you could have um, <laughs> continued to build power on the outside. And what is the case, right, for a billionaire running for president? Yeah. Well, I think in order to understand my motivation, you have to know a little bit about mm-hmm. my family. Yeah. And I'd say this look, my mother taught in the New York public schools and she taught in the Brooklyn House of Detention. And my dad, who was from Brooklyn, was the first generation in his family to go to college. He stopped being a lawyer. He went into the Navy in World War II, and then he prosecuted the Nazis at Nuremberg. And they were deeply justice-driven. They were deeply involved with the idea of you give back at least as much as you get. And so from my standpoint, as someone who built a business from nothing, I then took the giving pledge to give away at least half my money while I was alive to good causes. What they were standing for is what I want. That's how you have a meaningful life. I mean, it's kind of like Rashad. Why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. Because you want a meaningful life. You Mm want to stand up for the things you really believe in, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Me too. Yeah, I mean, but we have some different situations. Totally. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying, you know, from my standpoint, it's like, absolutely. Yeah. I want to do what my parents did, Mm -hmm. which is stand up for what's right. Go, you know, if you look at impeachment, yes. why would I start push to impeach the president of the United yeah. States to, starting two years ago? Well, because I thought he was deeply wrong, that he was deeply corrupt. Mm-hmm. He's a straight up racist. And when you see something like that, I mean, that was really a straight line from prosecuting Nazis to impeaching mm-hmm. Donald John Trump. Yeah. It's like you see something really wrong at the heart of your society. OK, mm-hmm. then you're supposed to fight that every day. And that's exactly what my parents said to me when I was growing up. I mean, you stepped out 
long before many others on impeachment and, and put resource and energy uh, behind it. And now you're going to be on the debate stage, right? And now you've got a lot of people that have followed you into the impeachment fight. Where do you see that going next? And, and how do you see that aligning with all the other issues that we uh, need to be talking about in this election and in this cycle and the folks who say it's distracting us from talking about criminal justice reform or distracting us from talking about the economy or whatever else. Well, I think obviously this thing's cascading. Yeah. You know, I've said from the beginning, most corrupt president in American history. I think we're seeing this evidence break on almost a daily basis saying that what we I knew and you knew two years ago was true is now cascading into the public consciousness. So exactly how this plays out, I'm not sure, but it's very obvious to me. Put it in front of the American people. Let us decide. And, you know, that's going to be actually the court that matters is the court of public opinion, because I don't believe these Republican senators can tell their constituents, yeah, it's really important to me to support a criminal in the White House. I don't think that's a winning strategy. Yeah. But in terms of the other policies, it's like, to me, when I look at impeachment, it's a win for the American people. It's, it's basically people in D.C. being dragged over yeah. two years. I mean, more than eight million people signed our petition to do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. So you're from, you live in the Bay Area now. I didn't, wasn't going to say you're from the Bay. You're from New York, I'm right? I'm from New York. And, um, and, but you live in the Bay now. And um, a lot of the big questions as we head into the election, not just about voting rights and our democracy, but about our economy, actually are, are connected to what's happening with big tech and connected to the role that big tech currently plays um, in our society and all the ways in which the rules have allowed them um, so much leeway. I'm interested sort of in how you think about this technology, which has so much potential to supercharge us into the future, but also um, the very real potential to drag us into the past. Um, and what is your plan for dealing with big tech? And how does that relate to all the sort of ways you think about corporate power? Okay. Well, listen, the big tech companies, some of them are natural monopolies Mm -hmm. and some of them are old fashioned monopolies. Mm -hmm. But in all cases, they're using concentrated power in the marketplace to take advantage, you know, Mm -hmm. to take advantage of Americans. So the right way to respond depends on your decision about whether this is a natural monopoly so that if you break them up, they'll just form back together again. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Or whether it's something where if you break them up, they will work, you know, then they will be separate competing against each other. Because the one thing you know about monopolies is this. In normal competitive situations, corporations work the hardest to get the best product at the lowest price so they can win the business. Yep, yep. But in a monopoly, when there's no one else who can sell what you have and it's something people really need, then you want to do the worst product at the highest price. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because if it were a better product, you have to spend more on it. And you just raise the price to wherever you can. So it's absolutely critical for government to be controlling this. And my analysis is some of these companies are what I would think of as natural monopolies, like the railroads or like public utilities. There's no one who's really ultimately going to be able to compete with them, and therefore they have to be regulated. And some of them are places where they're just using monopoly power in my mind, entirely inappropriate at the expense of the American people. And that's a direct thing we can deal with. So it really depends in each situation. 
if you break them up like an amoeba, are they just going to reform or not? Mm -hmm. And that you have to regulate. Or are they doing something specifically wrong that you have to cut off? Or if you break them up, they'll stay and compete against you. Do you have examples of companies that fit into either well, one sure. of those Well, sure. I'll, I'll give you an example. Like Amazon built a monopoly in terms of online purchasing. And then they started to buy companies that they would then yeah. you know, compete against the other people and give them an advantage. Good grief. The railroads got in trouble with that in 1900. That's absolutely wrong. Yeah. That's a straightforward monopolistic crime. Some of them, there's a question about whether it's a marketplace. And, you know, this goes back to the, the first time when there were marketplaces, you know, hundreds of years ago, where if you're a buyer, you want to come to the marketplace because that's where the sellers are. Yeah. And if I'm a seller, I want to go to the marketplace because that's where the buyers are. So there's a natural reason for people to converge. And that's how you would see it about Facebook. It's like you want to be on Facebook because the other people are on Facebook. So if you break it up, does that mean that actually they'll reform? That's something you have to regulate. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it really depends on an analysis. But what we know for sure is corporations are not allowed to exercise monopoly power against, you know, to the detriment of the American people. That's what government's been for. We're supposed to act on it. And it doesn't matter how it happened. If it happened because it's a natural monopoly and it just happened, doesn't matter. Monopolies always take advantage. Mm -hmm. That's just a rule. They always take advantage. You don't have to worry about whether they will, they will. So how will President Steyer deal with this, right? Because these entities control our flow to information. Um, they are deeply convenient. You know, the, the most, you know, progressive activists will have Amazon boxes showing up to their house. <laughs> and so, like, how do you actually, you know, navigate the ways in which these companies have seeped into our our sort of day-to-day -day public engagement Absolutely. with the very real impact they are having on both our current and future ability to have freedom. Well, you know, the thing that's scary about it is they're abusive in the economic marketplace, but they're also abusive, these corporations, in terms of our politics. Mm -hmm. And honestly, Rashad, my belief in this is that the absolute critical step one is what you do. It's going directly to the people and calling out the problem and making sure that together we realize we have to solve this. I don't think we solve any of this stuff without the American people accepting this is the problem. We're going to give you the right to solve this. We're behind you. I, I really deeply believe that, that if that doesn't happen, then, you know, the ability to take on this unchecked corporate power doesn't work. And yep. that, that's been for the last 10 years. I haven't done it on a national basis, but on a state level, my, my practice has been to build coalitions of Americans to take on these unchecked corporations. And we've been able to beat them because people yep. do understand yeah. these guys have bought the government and they're abusive. Yeah. Um, there's this saying um, that I use a lot. I don't know who originated, but when um, America gets the cold, uh, black people get the flu. And so much of your work has been around uh, climate justice and, um, and about um, what we do um, around the impacts to our planet. I'm really interested, not just in sort of the, the work to protect the planet, which is deeply important, but how you see the role of prosperity as it relates to black communities in, you know, I think about so many various moments, whether it's Katrina and in the levees break, a flood of bad decisions, but who gets to clean up? Who gets to prosper from the rebuild? Yeah. Look, I think that is actually a critical question. So let me say something about what 
my wife, Kat Taylor, and I have done. I don't know if you know this. You know, we started a nonprofit yep. community bank in Oakland because it was the highest percentage of people of color in Northern California, basically designed around economic justice, environmental sustainability, women and minority-owned businesses. For the reason you're saying, I believe really strongly that one of the ways that African-Americans are disadvantaged is by the way the financial system is set up and specifically banks. So we started a bank to try and to go in specifically to disadvantaged communities and provide money for minority-owned businesses, mm -hmm. for women-owned businesses. We, I think we financed 6,600 low-income housing units in the last three years. You know, we've tried to take on the payday lenders and the used car lenders as a way of saying, look, these are communities with opportunities in front of people where people are prevented from reaching anything like their potential for lack of capital. And that banks specifically avoid these places. And we were trying to go there and say, this is like, there's a shortage of capital. There's a lot of issues, mm -hmm. but this is one of them. Let's give people a chance to own their own business, to actually control their own destiny. Mm -hmm. And that's really the question you're asking. Because of course I'm for a living wage and I'm for working people sharing much more equitably mm -hmm. in the income of the United States. But you're asking a different question about control, about owning things, about controlling your destiny yep. and being able, yeah. And that's my point is yeah. that's the point of the bank. We've gone mm -hmm. from zero dollars. Mm -hmm. We started trying to get a, a, a bank charter in 2005 and we're at $1.1 billion. I think we have 17 branches and we're saying we want to be in the low income communities in every urban and rural district on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in you talking a little bit about uh, your proposal around uh, redistricting and sort of nonpartisan um, commissions. I'm also interested if, if you could square that with some of the um, proposals around um, a referendum and sort of, uh, and in both cases, introducing different ways from us to us getting to policy change. Um, one being sort of um, sort of a nonpartisan commission to deal with the kind of ways in which one person, one vote is divvied up. And the other is how people, um, which is something very common in California, but for many of um, our viewers and listeners, other places, they don't have, they don't have referendum. And there's, um, I think, a lot of ongoing questions from a civil rights perspective of how um, that level of direct democracy um, impacts those who have been marginalized for years. I was on the steering committee of Prop 8, of no on Prop 8, and, you know, watched as Obama, President Obama got elected and marriage was stripped away from gay and lesbian couples at the ballot. And so there's all sorts of questions around that. And so I'd be interested in, in both cases, both the policy is, is are important, but the kind of uh, questions about the how. Yeah. Yes. Look, I think the how is really... Look, yes. one of the things that's been going on in the United States systematically is an attempt by a minority party, the Republican Party, to have control over the United States by whatever means they can. And that includes a lot of different things. Yeah. It means striking people off the rolls in the hundreds of thousands. It means putting the polls in places people can't get to them. It means making it as hard. It really means suppression of the vote, specifically of African-Americans, but it also means gerrymandering. I mean, there's a series of intentional, coordinated, organized things that the Republican Party has done to try and maintain their control in the face of what we would think of as basic democratic norms and laws. And it's systematic, and they're shameless about it. 
and you know, I don't think it, it receives the outrage it deserves because, you know, and, and I say this when I'm not talking to someone who's an African-American mm -hmm. activist, given what it took to get that vote for African-Americans over hundreds of years, the idea that they would systematically strike people off the rolls intentionally and suppress the vote and try and take away the franchise is really not just a crime, but really a crime against the spirit of America. It's incredible. So when I look at gerrymandering, gerrymandering is an attempt to basically favor a party in terms of outcome by concentrating the votes of the other party in one district so they win that district by a ton and lose all the other districts. That's kind of the simple way of thinking about it. And the Republican Party has done this extremely effectively. With a, They actually, I believe, have a computer program to maximize gerrymandering. I mean, it's terrible, honestly. Um, in terms of direct democracy, the idea of, look, Prop 8 was one of the worst examples of a screwed up situation where people had no idea if yes was yes, yeah. yes was no, no was yes. It was a complete mess. And it came up with the exact wrong answer. My experience is when it's done right, it takes a lot of time and effort to get it right and a ton of planning. You know, if we're gonna run a proposition in November, we're thinking about it the August, you know, 14 months or 15 months beforehand. If Rashad Robinson had been there on Prop 8 14 months before Prop 8, we, then the, we've gotten the exact opposite outcome. But do you think that in 1965, America would have voted to give black people the right to vote at a referendum? No, you know, Rashad? Yes. Obviously, that's a critical fact yes. to have happened. Yes, yes, yeah. Critical but fact it, it to took, have happened. And it took the courts, right? Yeah. And so it happened through the Supreme Court. Yes. If you ask me today, this is what yes. I can say yes. to you. If you ask me today, would I take a vote of the American people on virtually anything ahead of the Supreme Court of the United States uh -huh. in 2019? I'd go yes. with the people. I hear you on that one. I would. I would. Yes. I hear you on that And one. I'm just telling you, yes. not only would I go with the people, I would say... But it's absolutely incumbent upon people who are activists, who are giving their time full time to it, like you, to say, if voting for African-Americans is going to be on the ballot in 2020, we're in. We're uh -huh. in full time. We have to make sure the American people understand what it is, and we're going to win it. The final question, I've been asking this of all the candidates. And the reason why I've been asking is because so much of the election season is um, candidates on the debate stage talking to, or, or just in communities, talking to the black community about um, how they're going to deal with the disparities and the issues, what they're going to do for the community. All of that is important. I feel like that's a, a result of a movement that has built and put our issues squarely on the table. The reason why I end with this, this other question, though, is because black people have contributed so much to our society and our country and to how we think about politics and social change and so much more. So I'd love for you to share maybe um, a black person, a black organization, a black person in your life who's helped you, informed your opinion about the work that you're doing. Um, okay. Yeah. So I'm going to actually talk about somebody who I met through environmental justice. So there is a woman from South Carolina named Deanna Berry, and she is from Denmark, South Carolina. And Denmark, South Carolina does not have a water treatment facility. It's a small, rural, African-American community. 
And as a result, people are getting sick and dying. And you might think that it's too small a place to merit a water treatment facility, which costs $12 million, but but they pay $16 million a year in water fees. So they can clearly afford a water treatment facility. And her husband actually has failing kidneys and may die. And she's one of the activists in this community pushing for fair treatment. She also has a daughter who I think is 16 years old, who has a completely unrelated medical problem where she may die. So I was down there having dinner with the people who were working to get clean water for their community, which this has been a problem for years, over a decade. And she told me, I have a choice, Tom. I can either take my daughter to the doctor or I can pay the rent. What do you think I'm going to do? And I said, Deanna, you're going to take your daughter to the doctor. And she said, I am. But I'm not sure where I'm going to be living on the first of next month. But that's not my point. My point about Deanna is this. She's incredibly optimistic. She works her ass off. She is a real leader in the community for what's right in the most difficult possible circumstances. So when I think about what is inspirational in America, when I think about people doing something where you go like, okay, but I better try to live up to people like that. I think about someone in the toughest circumstance being the most optimistic and pushing hard for the right at the same time that they understand that it's extremely costly to them personally because they've got a bunch of other things to deal with. That to me is like the best of America, the best. And I sit there and say, I just hope I'm remotely worthy of those people. We don't get to change without folks like that and without the folks like that in leadership. And, um, and so thank you for sharing that story. Thank you for joining us in this conversation. And thank you for all the work that you've done out in the world to make climate justice and what's happening to our planet such a visible and salient issue. But Rashad, let me say one other thing, yeah. which is this. I think that for all this stuff to change, and I think you're actually a master at this, we're going to have to retell the story of America in an honest way. I think policy falls out of history and understanding. And there, this has been a story that America has not told the truth on, has not been willing, not just the wrongs done, the leadership and the work contributed by African Americans mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. hundreds of years. And until we start to, until that story is told over, and that's the story people know, then I don't believe we're going to actually get all the policies that have to happen. We have to, we have to absolutely resolutely change the story of how America was built, who did the work, the the moral leadership of the African-American community. It's critical that people understand that and that becomes an absolute part of the story so that the kinds of policies and discriminations that has been legal and Mm -hmm. and implicit as well as explicit can't go on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, for joining us today. And thanks to all of our listeners. Before you go, text, tweet, and email this episode to your friends. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Voting While Black podcast so you'll get an alert about next week's episode featuring Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Voting While Black is a national voter mobilization project based in Black joy and building Black power. 
we will kick off hundreds of brunches and other events in 2020 to bring Black folks and our allies together to get informed about the election. Sign up and be the first to hear about the Voting While Black tour at votingwhileblack.com. Thank you to everyone who helped make this show possible, including our own Whitney Bugs, Tanika Boyd, Valerie Brown, Jennifer Edwards, Kwesi Chapin, Devorn Hermiku, Vanessa Ross, Drew Daniels, and Alexis Grishaber. Additional thanks to Ryan Center. This show was produced by Color of Change Pack in partnership with Neon Hum Media. I'm Rashad Robinson. See you next week. <laughs>